As usual, let's start the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato ahato samma sambodasa. Our four week retreat comes to an end while we still have one and a half days left. But with this talk, I want to show how the practice of the Dhamma can and actually must be integrated into our day-to-day life. Well, actually, it's to show that all aspects of our life become the practice. And the title of this talk is The Best of Everything because that's usually what people want. They want the best. Everything, always the best. (laughs) And so, what is the best we can get out of our life? It's basically dana, sila and bhavana. I will talk about these three aspects. For me, the teaching of the Buddha is a holistic approach to life or to make life meaningful, to discover the best in me and then to extract it. From quite a young age I was looking for a way to better understand the workings of my mind and a way of how to be of service to others, to other human beings to other living beings. The Buddha's teaching is life-encompassing, which means that all aspects of life are included in his teaching. The complete liberation of the heart and the mind is the result of a long and profound process of purification that does not only take place on the meditation cushion. On the contrary, how I live my life, my everyday life, has a great influence on the state of my mind. For example, when I'm generous, this makes my mind happy and content. When I tell a lie, my mind then is overcome with sorrow and maybe remorse. Or when I'm kind and friendly, then my mind feels peaceful. The teaching of the Buddha aims at an inner freedom, an inner freedom from all the constraints, inner freedom from all the painful habitual patterns. Basically it's the freedom from fear, worry, 
grief, anger, hatred. It's the freedom from craving, desire, wanting or attachment. And it's the freedom from false views and erroneous views and misleading opinions. And so this inner freedom can be realized with the practice, the practice of the various aspects that the Buddha had pointed out, which serve for the purification of the heart and the mind. So basically, there are three aspects in our life that help us develop wholesome and beneficial states of heart and mind. And these three aspects are dana, which means giving, offering, sharing. It's generosity. The second aspect is sila, which means virtue, our behavior of body and speech guided by ethical principles. And the third aspect is bhavana, which is usually translated as meditation, but uh, means mental development, mental cultivation. So, by cultivating and strengthening wholesome states of mind, then the unwholesome and harmful states of mind weaken and ultimately they can be overcome. So the practice of dana weakens qualities such as avarice, attachment and clinging. Then the practice of sila is an effective protection against acting out harmful and detrimental actions, actions of body and speech. And the practice of bhavana leads to the realization of the true nature of all existing things. And with the practice of bhavana, by realizing the true nature of all existing things, the gradual weakening and finally complete overcoming of all unwholesome um, mental states occurs. And so with that, wisdom starts blooming and with it all the other beneficial states such as loving-kindness, compassion, patience, truthfulness, (coughs) sympathetic joy or equanimity. So in today's talk, I want to explore these three aspects of dana, sila and bhavana and how they can help and support us in our quest for freedom or complete liberation. The first aspect is dana. This Pali word dana means generosity or giving, offering or sharing. 
And dana is the active expression of an inner generous attitude. <clears throat> and in Pali this is called jaga. So the inner generous attitude is jaga, and then the active expression of it, the actual giving, sharing, this is dana. To be generous is a human quality praised in all the religions, all the spiritual traditions. It's the quality of the heart that motivates a person to give something to somebody else, to share something with somebody else who needs it or um, who uh, is happy or uh, joyful that he or she gets it. And so by giving, we can counteract ugly qualities like stinginess, selfishness, attachment, holding on to things. And by repeatedly engaging in the practice of dana, repeatedly giving, we uh, further strengthen and cultivate this wholesome quality of generosity. The Buddha had always stressed the importance of giving because with this act of giving we can practice a first step towards letting go. As we know, desire, attachment, or craving are the cause of all that is painful, that's the cause of not attaining the much-desired happiness and satisfaction. So in regard to giving, the Buddha had said, If beings knew, as I know, the result of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would they allow the stain of meanness to obsess them and take roots in their minds. Even if it were their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it, if there were someone to share it with. So here the Buddha uh, mentions, you know, the immense, immense benefits, the immense results that um, that happen um, on account of giving. Living for many years in Burma, I I found that most people understand the effect and importance of dana. Giving is a widespread daily practice. You know, people would miss something important if they could not give and offer. For most of the Burmese people, the daily offering of rice or food to the monks on arms round is an integral part of their daily routine. And, 
you know, they give on so many different occasions. For example, um, the mother of Mimi, Mimi, my Burmese friend, um, they live in an apartment block in Yangon. And so Mimi's mother, they would, she would, you know, cook some curry uh, for lunch and then she would give a little ball of this, let's say, chicken curry or vegetable curry. She would give it to one of her neighbors living on the same uh, floor or having bought some fruits from the market. Uh, she would also then share uh, this fruit with some of her neighbors. Or on such occasions as a birthday, a wedding, or a wedding anniversary, or a death, or a death anniversary, people would often give a donation to a monastery or a meditation center. It could be a donation of food, of a meal, could be a donation of robes for the monks, robes for the nuns, or it could be an offering of money to the center so that they can pay the bill for the electricity or for the water or uh, for the renovation of the kitchen. But donations are also made to other institutions, you know, not only to monasteries, nunneries and meditation centers. Also, for example, uh, to the general hospital in Yangon, where um, Mimi's family, they had made an offering of a meal to the patients in the cancer ward. That's possible. Or people give to the not so many old folks home that exist in Burma. Or they would support and make uh, give dana to a home uh, that cares for children with HIV. And as far as I know, like all the Burmese, all the meditation centers in Burma, you know, where people, lay people, monastics can go and practice meditation, they all run on dana, on donations. So in these meditation centers, there is no fixed amount of money to pay for accommodation and food. So really everything um, is based on uh, donations. Because people in Burma, they are highly aware of how precious the Dhamma is and how precious it is to have teachers who guide one in the practice uh, of meditation. And so then the donations to the teachers, to the meditation center, are an expression of their immense gratitude and appreciation. And the generosity of most Burmese people is really very infectious. 
I have learned so much from all from all these generous Burmese people during all the years that I stayed in Burma. And among other things that I learned uh, from them is that giving, sharing is a joyous thing. I came to experience for myself that, yes, when we are generous, then joy arises. It makes me happy. It makes, and it brings joy when I can give something to others they need or something they like. So, by giving, we also receive a gift, the gift of joy, the gift of happiness. <clears throat> you probably know of have, or have heard from Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of South Africa, and he expressed it in this way. Sometimes I say as a joke that God is not very good at math because if you give something to others, you should actually subtract that from yourself. Inexplicably, however, I found it time and, time and again confirmed that by giving something to others, one is given even more abundantly. <laughs> You know, there is an annual World Giving Index that determines the country with the most generous people. And it doesn't surprise me that Burma occupies the first place. The last time they did it, it was in 2014, and so 140 countries were chosen to find out where people are most generous, generous in the meaning of offering money to somebody, to some institution, <coughs> and also where they excel in voluntary service, which country people do most you know, voluntary service, and where they are most helpful to strangers. So these three aspects were um, examined, and so Burma is on place uh, one. And in the commentary uh, to this World Giving Index, the report says that the Buddhist tradition is reflected in the result with its emphasis on giving and volunteering. For example, 91% of Burmese people said that they had been donating money to a charitable institution. So, somehow, offering and giving seem to be an inherent need of human beings. A human being is a social being and Usually, it is important to a human being that his or her fellow 
human beings are also well. So this is an expression of metta, wishing others to be well too. But it is also important to a human being to relieve the pain and suffering of others. And this is an expression of karuna. And as we know, metta and karuna are two of the four um, boundless states, or brahma-viharas. So because of these two attitudes of metta and karuna, people want to help and they want to share with others what they have. Following is a quote from the head of a fundraising service. So he said, In addition, generosity is a need for many people and not a must. There are different motives. Some donate out of gratitude, some out of a guilty conscience some to avert imminent harm, some out of responsibility or identification with the organization. Others are generous because they themselves are affected. Giving can lead to a deep inner satisfaction. This is often the reason why people who donate once donate again and again. Dana, or generosity, is also one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections. And Dana is at the top of this list, of these paramis, because it is such a basic and important human quality and it can contribute enormously to the purification of the heart and the mind. Ajahn Chah, the Thai master, had said, giving dana, this is a way of cleansing what is soiled within. So a cleansing of qualities like attachment, holding on, stinginess and selfishness. To let go of deep-seated opinions or of misleading beliefs is more difficult. And that is why we can start where it is a little bit easier. It's a bit easier to give, to let go on the material level. So we can practice the letting go of material things by giving, by offering, by sharing. So with this simple gesture of giving, of letting go, we experience how this letting go not only makes us happy, but how it enriches us as well. And with this repeated act of giving, of sharing, then it creates a familiarity with letting go, you know, the letting go of holding on, 
the letting go of firmly grasping at something. So this basic experience of letting go is very important for preparing the mind to let go of more subtle things, to let go of subtle attachments, to let go of uh, misleading beliefs or deep-seated opinions. In the suttas, we we often encounter the fact that the Buddha began his gradual teaching on the Dhamma with an explanation, with an exposition on the topic of generosity. Especially when the Buddha gave a talk to an audience that did not yet um, that did not uh, that had not yet recognized him as their teacher. So then he started to talk about the value of giving. And only after that did the Buddha introduce other uh, aspects of the teaching, such as ethic, uh, virtuous behavior, sila, or then talking on the law of karma and its effects or the benefits of renunciation. And only when all these principles had made an impression on the listeners did the Buddha go to the point that only Buddhas <coughs> discover, namely to talk about the Four Noble Truths. Dana, being generous, giving, this can also be a cool thing, as this group of young punks in Yangon, Burma shows. In their own way, they support people who are less well-off than they are. In a little article that I had read, it says, Every Monday night, Jojo meets with other punks in Yangon to distribute food to the homeless. Food, not bombs, is the name of the action that exists worldwide. Jojo learned about it on the internet and was impressed. So then Jojo and his friends, the punks, walk through Yangon with bananas, biscuits and rice and look for people who live or sleep on the street, mostly near the railway station. And Jojo said, sometimes we are overzealous and actually and accidentally give food to people who do not need it. Then they are offended. Now we will go to the second aspect, which is sila. Another form of dana is called 
the five great gifts. And this refers to the five ethical guidelines. So sila is our behavior of body and speech based on ethical guidelines. And it finds its expression in the five precepts. Sila is not only about actions that we should avoid, but it is a wonderful and a joyous practice of how we can engage in wholesome, in good and beneficial actions. Sila uh, can bring out the best in us. How important Sila is as part of the spiritual path is also expressed by the fact that virtue is part of the Eightfold Path. And this Eightfold Path um, is divided into three groups. It's the groups of uh, Sila, Virtue, Samadhi, Concentration and Panya, uh, Wisdom. And so among the eight factors, it's three factors that belong to the sila group, the group of virtue. It's right action, right speech, and right livelihood. The Buddha realized very clearly that liberation without virtuous behavior is not possible. And this is why he integrated this aspect, this really important aspect into the path. And so with this, it makes it also clear that the practice of the Dhamma does not only consist of intensive meditation retreats or years of practice in a cave or in the jungle. We must include all aspects of life in our practice. That means you know, all aspects of our life, including our day-to-day -day life in our practice of the Dhamma. So by following the precepts, by refraining from harmful um, and unwholesome actions of body and speech, we actually offer a gift to uh, other beings. We offer the gifts of safety, of fearlessness, of love, trust and goodwill. And unlike other forms of dana, this way of giving is not uh, labor intensive, it's not very time consuming. By simply keeping the precepts we can gain immense merits, and this without spending one cent. So explicitly, the precepts state what I should not do. You know, the first precept, I undertake the precept to refrain from killing living beings. 
but implicitly it means that they undertake the practice to protect living beings, to protect them from harm, to protect them from injury, to protect them from death. And in respect to the other precepts, it means to respect the property of others, to respect the relationship of others, means to tell the truth, and means to go through life with a clear mind. So this implicit aspect of the precept is actually an expression of metta, namely the expression of benevolence and kindness, the expression of my wish that other beings may be well, that they not that they may not be harmed, that they may not lose their happiness, that they may not lose their wealth or their uh, loved ones. And here comes a short passage from a book that is called Life is Spiritual Practice by... um, Sean Smith. Ethical integrity or virtue, this is a liberating quality of the heart and mind that harmonizes the inner and outer life. It gives us peace and freedom and freedom of fear for those with whom we share the world. So sila, virtue, is the foundation and the result of our practice. Initially, we base our practice on these ethical guidelines because we understand that they are helpful for us, for our practice. We understand they are a good foundation for our practice and for our life. But then, later on, we will no longer need this external framework, like these guidelines, mm-hmm. as such. Because through our direct and personal insights in practice, we come to a point where we no longer perform harmful or unwholesome actions of body and speech. So then there is enough restraint in our actions. You know, also what I mentioned yesterday, the guardians of the world, Hiri and Otapa, are strong enough to prevent us from uh, engaging in harmful, unwholesome actions. Lama Anagarika Govinda, he was German and he was a student of Tiloka, a German monk who lived in Sri Lanka. So Lama Anagarika Govinda, he put it in this way. For the Buddhist, 
virtue is only the practical expression of his level of knowledge. Virtue is not the cause, but the effect of our mental attitude. And now we go to the third aspect, which is bhavana, mental development, mental cultivation or meditation. The mind has an incredible power that can be used in a good way or in a bad way. For example, the atomic bomb was born in the mind of a human being, but also the social revolution led by Martin Luther King. Or Aristotle formulated his philosophy in his mind as did the French philosopher Descartes. Or then the pyramids in Egypt, the Eiffel Tower in Paris, or the Great Wall in China, they are all created, were all created in the mind of a human being or human beings. So the mind of human beings can reach inimaginable depths. However, the huge potential of the mind is not used by many people. But when the mind's ability to see things clearly is used properly, amazing insights, amazing understanding can be gained. So, You know, the Pali word is bhavana, most commonly translated as meditation. But bhavana, you know, can also be uh, described as the systematic training of the mind or the cultivation of wholesome and beneficial qualities in the heart and the mind or to cultivate the heart and the mind to see things as they really are. So bhavana is a comprehensive teaching, sorry, a comprehensive training of the heart and the mind. And it is very important to understand that this training of the heart and the mind does not only happen on the meditation cushion. It means that this training of the heart and the mind is not tied to a specific place like the meditation center or a meditation cushion. <coughs> on the contrary, we can train the heart and the mind anywhere in any posture. So in the Buddhist teaching, the training of the heart and the mind aims at the profound understanding of the true nature of all existing things based on 
benevolence and compassion. So, insight, understanding, wisdom on the one hand, and benevolence, compassion, kindness on the other hand, are the fundamental qualities that should be developed and realized with Buddhist bhavana, Buddhist meditation. Just as a bird needs two wings to fly, so we need both qualities of wisdom and compassion for a meaningful and fulfilling life. So as I said, with bhavana, with meditation, we can train different skills and develop helpful qualities. The two basic meditation approaches in the Buddha's teaching are the tranquility meditation and the insight meditation. So first a few words in regard to tranquility meditation. The Pali term is samatha bhavana, which can be translated as tranquility meditation or concentration meditation. And this type of meditation leads to a collected mind, to a one-pointed mind, to a concentrated mind. And as you know, this kind of meditation only takes one object, and then one focuses the mind all the time on this one object. And if the mind wanders off, one brings the mind back to this one object. And then, as concentration deepens, a profound calmness uh, sets in. The mind becomes peaceful, calm, tranquil. And based on this tranquility or calmness, feelings of happiness elation or bliss can arise. In the practice of samatha meditation, disturbing thoughts or emotions are temporarily suppressed by the deeply uh, concentrated mind. Because the mind is so deeply concentrated, then these thoughts or emotions cannot enter the mind, cannot invade the mind. They are temporarily suppressed. It's like they have to wait outside. But even the deepest state of concentration, you know, the absorptions, the jhanas, they do not have the power to eradicate the defilements. And this tranquility meditation is the form of meditation what most people think of when they hear the term meditation. The second approach is the insight meditation. In Pali, it's vipassana bhavana. So insight meditation sometimes also translated as 
mindfulness meditation because as I've already pointed out mindfulness is such a basic and important factor to develop in order to get insights in order to see things as they truly are and so this type of meditation leads to insight, to understanding, to knowledge, to wisdom. And unlike in Samatha meditation, where we only have one object, in Vipassana meditation we do not choose only one object, but basically everything appearing in body and mind can become the object of our mindfulness, of our meditation. Because as we aim to get insight into the true nature of all things, we need to observe everything that arises in body and mind. And so, as mindfulness increases and as concentration deepens, the processes in the body and mind are seen more and more clearly and distinctly. And so as a result, insights into the true nature of these processes arise. And so, among other things that can be seen, among other insights, one comes to realize the three general characteristics. As you know, Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta. Impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature and not-self or the impersonal nature of all phenomena. And so with the deepening of these insights and this understanding then eventually the defilements uh, will be overcome, or in other words, the defilements will be completely uprooted from the continuum of the mind. And it is this kind of meditation, the Vipassana Bhavana, inside meditation, that made the Buddha to the Buddha meaning um, by means of this approach he became fully liberated, he became enlightened. The Samatha Bhavana, the tranquility meditation, can serve as a good and helpful basis for Vipassana meditation. But it's not absolutely necessary to first engage in Samatha meditation before proceeding to Vipassana meditation. It can be done, it can be helpful, but um, as I've already pointed out, it's also possible to directly uh, practice Vipassana meditation and by developing a constant and in uninterrupted mindfulness, then concentration develops hand in hand with the 
cultivation of mindfulness. And as you know, metta meditation is one of the many types of samatha meditations, tranquility meditation. But with the practice of metta, we do not only uh, develop the concentration, the one-pointedness of the mind, but at the same time we also develop and strengthen this quality of loving-kindness, of friendliness, of benevolence. And I found that this metta uh, meditation practice is equally helpful for the meditation practice, you know, as a support also for the vipassana meditation, but it's also very helpful for day-to-day life. In regard to meditation, the practice of meditation. So for me, any kind of meditation should also be applicable in our uh, day-to-day life. So this means, firstly, that that I'm able to implement this practice in everyday life and not just in a retreat or at home while sitting in the corner on my cushion. And secondly, it means that I'm able to experience the beneficial and wholesome effects of meditation in everyday life, in a down-to-earth way. If meditation can only be practiced in a protected environment, and if the positive outcomes of meditation can only be experienced on the cushion, then this would not make much sense to me. As I've already said, it takes an all-encompassing training of the heart and the mind to reduce and eventually completely overcome all kinds of suffering or to live happily and peacefully or to be completely free from all inner suffering or to see things as they really are. Wisdom, benevolence and compassion are the fruits of the complete purification of the heart and mind which includes all aspects of life. Anagarika Munindra was a meditation teacher coming from Bengal. He had also practiced under Mahasi Sayadaw in Burma and later he became the teacher of Deepama or Western teachers like Joseph Goldstein or Sharon Salzberg. And for Anagarika Munindra, mindfulness was not some kind of a mystical state, but a mundane act that anyone could 
and should do in any moment. He often emphasized this to his students. He would say, Everything is meditation in this practice. Even while eating, drinking, dressing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Whatever you are doing, everything should be done mindfully, dynamically, with totality, completeness, thoroughness. Then it becomes meditation. Then it becomes meaningful, purposeful. It is not thinking, but experiencing from moment to moment, living from moment to moment, without clinging, without condemning, without judging, without evaluation, without comparing, without selecting, without criticizing, choiceless awareness. Meditation is not only sitting, it is a way of living. It should be integrated into our whole life. It is actually an education in how to see, how to hear, how to smell, how to eat, how to drink, how to walk with full awareness. To develop mindfulness is the most important factor in the process of awakening. So this is Monindra. Now, before I end this talk, another perspective on these three aspects of dana, sila and bhavana, on generosity, virtue and meditation. Very generally made, we can make this reference. First of all, dana, generosity, is the best we can get out of our material possessions. The best we can get out of material things. Then second, sila, virtue, is the best we can get out of our body. And third, bhavana, the training of the heart and the mind, this is the best we can get out of the heart and mind. Material things, the body and the mind, are three quite obvious aspects in our life. And somehow our whole life revolves around these three aspects. And as we know from our life, from our own experience, there is so much attachment in regard to the body, attachment to the mind, attachment to material things. And there are also many misconceptions in regard to a wise and appropriate attitude to the body, mind and material things. In order to be happy and to avoid suffering, we often act 
selfishly and in ways that are actually counterproductive. This is the deep-seated ignorance. And so with the practices of dana, sila and bhavana, the Buddha showed us a way by which each aspect of life can be used in the best possible way to support us in our practice of liberation. So in this way, we must include everything. We must include everything that is part of our life. And we must include it in our practice of the Dhamma. So really nothing is excluded. And so from this point of view, the practice of the Dhamma is truly applicable for everyday use. So our whole life becomes our practice. So we can get the best out of everything, everywhere and at all times. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.